and Almighty God's plan is working. Think of it. The incalculable good the Constitution has accomplished in the United States and globally, just in terms of the liberty it has facilitated for billions to say nothing of life in the pursuit of happiness. Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. Today we're listening to Ahmed S. Corbett, an accomplished lawyer and first counselor in the Young Men General Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He spoke at the J. Reuben Clark Law Society annual fireside just this past January. His remarks are about how the Lord calls upon lawyers to move forward his purposes in the latter days. Take a listen. Primary General President Camille N. Johnson, a lawyer of more than 30 years, stated in, the, in our church's general conference in October, quote, although asking a witness a question to which you do not know the answer is generally unwise for a trial lawyer, the opposite is true for us followers of Christ, close quote. I will ask many questions tonight and will leave it to you to decide if I'm following her wise counsel. I begin with two questions. Does God specially call upon latter-day lawyers for his purposes in these last days? If so, why? It seems to me our Heavenly Father does specially communicate his priorities to latter-day lawyers through the Book of Mormon, ancient and modern prophets, and his establishment of the United States Constitution. First, the Book of Mormon. In Western Hemisphere property law, there is a legal doctrine known to few non-lawyers, yet it is of such significance that everyone on the American continent would benefit from knowing it. Its import lies not so much in the legal doctrine itself, but in its spiritual implications for every inhabitant of the Americas. I invite our brothers, sisters, and friends in this global fireside who live in areas other than the Americas to carefully consider whether parallel principles apply to your lands and nations. In the United States and in other jurisdictions in the world, original parties to a transfer of land may agree that that land be used in certain ways. Such parties may agree that certain obligations or restrictions legally bind subsequent possessors of the land and make the land unable to be conveyed without them, including in perpetuity. All successors to the original parties, regardless of who they are and when they take possession, are entitled to all the agreement's benefits and are subject to all its obligations and restrictions. This legal doctrine is called a covenant running with the land. In its simplest application in the United States, three conditions must exist for a covenant to run with land. First, the parties to the covenant must intend for it to do so and explicitly show this intention in writing. Second, Subsequent landowners must have notice of the covenant, which is why it needs to be explicit and in writing. And third, the covenant must touch and concern the land or relate to how the land is used. Why is this legal doctrine so important to the denizens of the Americas? Because, as you may have perceived, it is in similitude of God's dealings with this land and its inhabitants. By analogy, this legal doctrine can help God's children see the spiritual doctrine that is a covenant running with, the, with this land. 
It can help them understand the spiritual covenant's terms, importance, and original parties. What can we divine from the uncanny similarities between these counterparts? Of course, the original parties to the covenant running with this land are the Lord and his ancient prophets. The intentions of all these parties are explicit and contained in at least two writings, both comprising the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. The book doc, that book documents that at the time of what is called the confusing of language and the scattering of various societies from the city and tower of Babel, the Lord led a people to this area of the world. He would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. This was the Lord's land. He was the principal party and grantor at the genesis of the American conveyance. He remains so. Many centuries later, at about 600 B.C., the Lord used similar grantor language with other would-be inhabitants of this land, also from the Middle East. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Blessed art thou, Nephi. Ye shall be led to a land of promise, a land which I have prepared for you. These statements, among others, show not only that the land belonged to the Lord, but also his clear intention as the party who preserved and prepared it to convey it for special purposes and to particular peoples. According to the Bible dictionary, covenant denotes an agreement more often between God and man. Continuing the quote, in this case, it is important to notice that the two parties to the agreement do not stand in relation of independent and equal contractors. God, in his good pleasure, fixes the terms which man accepts, close quote. And gospel principles teaches God sets the terms of his covenants and he reveals these terms to his prophets, close quote. In the two conveyances mentioned, the prophet parties were first the brother of Jared and later the prophets Lehi and Nephi. In time, other prophets became witnesses to this covenant and successors to its original grantees. Thus, the intentions of the original parties that a covenant run with this land are explicit and in a writing, the Book of Mormon. What a fair notice of a covenant to successors to the original parties. The Book of Mormon repeatedly and equitably puts American civilizations, including ours, on notice of this covenant and its terms. The Lord himself referred to this notice as the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon. Though deposited in the land itself to come forth as a voice from the dust, the Book of Mormon is hardly an obscure legal document filed away in some hidebound registry in a dusty county clerk's office. On the contrary, it was brought forth most publicly for all the world to see. Indeed, that it was revealed by an angel, disinterred by a teenager, written on gold plates, translated from ancient characters, visually witnessed by many, returned to an angel so as to make it unavailable for inspection, and spiritually witnessed by millions, all assure maximum publicity, each in its own way. From its initial publication in 1830 until now, the Book of Mormon has virtually flooded the earth, becoming one of the world's most influential books of all time. 
The third condition for a covenant to run with land is that it touch and concern the land or relate to its use. Remember that God in his good pleasure fixes the terms which man accepts. This includes how his land is to be used or what touches and concerns it from his godly perspective. Surely the sad tales of fallen civilizations who fail to honor this perpetual covenant are touching and concerning. Perhaps the most repeated provision of the covenant running with this land is this binary one to both ancient and ancient American civilizations. Lehi recounts it this way. And God hath said, inasmuch as you shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. But inasmuch as you will not keep my commandments, ye shall be cut off from my presence. The Lord made a similar declaration to the earlier Jaredites. And the Lord had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. These declarations make plain what the covenant is and its original conveyor's intention that it run with the land and in perpetuity from that time henceforth and forever, for it is the everlasting decree of God. All of this was communicated to both sets of would-be inhabitants prior to and as a condition of their taking possession of the land. Yet generations after their arrival to the shores somewhere on this covenant land, the Jaredite people experienced sweeping deterioration. The people of Lehi, too, became subject to divine contractual enforcement. Again, why would the Lord weave this uncanny parallel to modern property law into a book written for our day? Much could go into an analysis of this question, but could it be that by mirroring his covenant with future property law, God intended to reflect his image for latter-day detection? In other words, did he who sees the end from the beginning embed a tailored message set to time release for Latter-day lawyers at a critical juncture in American history. Perhaps this is all a big coincidence. Perhaps chiasmus embedded in the Book of Mormon is too. But if the answers to these questions are yes, what could the Lord be saying and what would he have us do? Let me attempt to answer these questions in the second and third sections. God speaking to latter-day lawyers through his ancient and modern prophets and through the establishment of the United States Constitution. We have discussed many examples of his doing so through ancient prophets. In recent years, it seems he is calling upon us more frequently and through a broader variety of living apostles and prophets. In just the G20 annual fora of the last few years alone, these servants of the Lord have reminded the world of the valued blessing of religious freedom and warned against its loss, including during a pandemic. Several have invited greater unity and graciously expressed appreciation for service and good of other religions. They have pledged solidarity in the face of religious persecution. They have done the same on university and other platforms 
Elder D. Todd Christofferson uh, did the same in, in Argentina in the G20 there, who was here tonight. In our own general conference last April, President Dallin H. Oaks stated, Our belief in divine inspiration gives Latter-day Saints a unique responsibility to uphold and defend the United States Constitution and principles of constitutionalism wherever we live. Close quote. I suggest this implies an even greater responsibility for Latter-day Saint lawyers to do so. Third, what about God speaking to Latter-day lawyers through the establishment of the United States Constitution, which I'll call the Constitution? To address this point, let me return to the covenant running with this land. Lehi shares two other provisions of that covenant made to him specifically. In the first, he states, We have obtained a land of promise, which the Lord God hath covenanted unto me, and to my children forever. Lehi then declares the second broader provision. What interesting implications do you hear in it? Quote, The Lord hath also covenanted this land unto all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Wherefore I, Lehi, prophesy according to the workings of the Spirit which is in me, that there shall none come into this land save they shall be brought by the hand of the Lord. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the covenants which commandments which he has given them, it shall be a land of liberty unto them. But if iniquity shall abound, cursed shall be the land for their sakes. But unto the righteous it shall be blessed forever. Close quote. The international diversity now upon this land seems to confirm that God intended this land to host host an unprecedented variety of humanity from sundry parts of the earth. But with the histories of racial and ethnic warfare, religious and tribal strife, the barbaric slave trade, unjust servitude, and so on, how could they possibly live together in one land and be governed in peace and harmony? World history suggests this would be tantamount to a continental cage match. How would a loving father in heaven who hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, who commands his children to love one another and be one, make us one, how would he help them unite and form an increasingly more perfect union? It seems he would need to establish a system of government based on inspired principles and laws rather than demographic designations. Everyone, irrespective of background, would need to be held to the same standards and be unified by them. Such governing principles would need to be understood as an endowment from heaven and from no earthly source of power. They would need to be resolute, inviolate, sacrosanct, upheld by oath to God and man. And he who foreknew and apparently respected modern law, including principles of liberty, equity, due process, and written notice, would need to establish this system in writing. But why do it? Wouldn't people tend to have less conflict and more peace in more homogenous societies? What in heaven's name was he trying to accomplish with this vast amalgam 
of humanity upon this land. Before sharing my view of that grander vision, let me devote some time to another question. I do so in view of theories and philosophies that reposition the Constitution as essentially oppressive, racist, and accordingly unworthy of continued moral authority and legal application in enlightened societies. The first question is two-part. First, what are the implications of God's covenant with Lehi for the descendants of the millions of God's children who were inhumanely captured and enslaved upon this land? Were they too brought by the hand of the Lord? Second, what of the United States Constitution's countenance of slavery? It permitted that evil institution. Don't we as Latter-day Saints believe the Constitution was inspired by God? Here is our unique strength as members and lawyers of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let me address these questions in reverse order. We know our loving Father in Heaven explicitly denounced slavery. Through revelation to Joseph Smith, the Lord declared, It is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. And for this purpose, I have established the Constitution upon the, of this land. What was God's purpose in establishing the United States Constitution, President Oaks asked conference viewers. We see it in the doctrine of moral agency, he said. Why? That every man may act in doctrine and principle according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, the Lord said. And that law of the land, which is constitutional, supporting that principle of freedom and maintaining rights and privileges, belongs to all mankind, the Lord affirmed. It seems the Lord even anticipated disputes about what a person is. Twenty-five years later, in 1857, a 7-2 to United States Supreme Court, you law students will know this, and the rest of you may remember it, a 7-2 to majority of the United States Supreme Court infamously ruled that Dred Scott, a black man who sought to maintain his and his family's freedom after moving into a slave state, quote, could claim none of the rights and privileges, note the mirrored language, which the Constitution provides for and secures to citizens of the United States, close quote. The majority were apparently unaware that the Lord had declared that the Constitution, quote, should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles. Close quote. This is proof that, like some in the Nephite legal community, when lawyers and judges drift from the knowledge of the true nature of our loving Father in heaven and from his doctrine, we can fail to see God's hand and purpose. Then all manner of mischief ensues that is dangerous for others. As President Oaks keenly, if graciously, observed, quote, we do not see inspiration in every Supreme Court decision interpreting the Constitution, <laughs> close quote. Incidentally, I, this talk was written before I received the RSVP list. <laughs> 
by seeing the Lord's hand in establishing the Constitution, we hear him speak to us regarding his grand purposes. What of God's covenant with Lehi and its relation to enslaved peoples brought to the Americas? I think of the tragic abuse of innocent believers in Christ in the ancient Book of Mormon city of Ammonihah. Angry at the prophets Alma and Amulek, their teachings and their converts, the authorities of that city, here lawyers and judges who had drifted from true religion, cast the believers, including their children, into a pit of fire. They were mocking the hell of which the two prophets had warned the people. Amulek exclaimed to Alma, how can we witness this awful scene? Perhaps this was your cry and mine during the horrors of slavery and other atrocities, if we were aware of them as unborn spirits in the presence of our Heavenly Father. These prophets were constrained from exercising the power of God to save the people. Quote, for behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory, Alma said. He then answers one of mortality's most perplexing questions and settles the brought by the hand of the Lord question for me. Quote, God doth suffer that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day, close quote. And in the United States, those judgments came. On Christmas Day, 28 years before the start of the American Civil War, when racial hate was strong and mocked the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, the prophet Joseph Smith declared, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God, that the commencement of the difficulties which will cause much bloodshed previous to the coming of the Son of Man will be in South Carolina. Close, close quote. He felt it would be over slavery, which he and the church opposed, and terminate in the death and misery of many souls. Close quote. Thus I see brought by the hand of the Lord, not as, not at all as the Lord's actual bringing of enslaved black people here, nor is his countenancing the means by which they were brought. Rather, I see it as painfully permitted by a God who weeps because his children hate their own blood. I see a wise father who would leverage this wicked use of agency by others of his children to liberate all flesh, including his black children, throughout the world and for centuries to come. Therefore, to undermine the birthing instrument of self-government in the earth in the interests of anti-racism would ironically be to weaken the very means God used to liberate and uses to liberate black people and all people. It would be like chopping down a fruit tree that is the main food source for oneself and one's family because several of its original planters engaged in slavery even though God gave the increase. Or like jackhammering the trusses of a mile-high bridge holding you and your family because some of its builders owned slaves, even though the great architect erected it to conduct all of humanity over the jagged cavern of racial and ethnic division and conflict. I hasten to acknowledge, as did President Oaks at last year's Freedom Festival, that, quote, 
Our original Constitution, adopted in 1787, had what our distinguished former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, herself a member of our most prominent minority, called some birth defects. He continued, nevertheless, it was our best hope for freedom and self-government. It remains so, close quote. We also recognize that the Constitution's flaw was not in its inspired principles and structure. Rather, its main flaw, in my view, was its lack of application of these benefits to all God's children. Thanks be to our Heavenly Father that he answers this nation's prayerful song, America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. Perhaps this is what Alexis de Tocqueville meant when he observed the great privilege of the Americans did not, does not simply consist in their being more enlightened than other nations, but in their being able to repair the faults they may commit. Close quote. President Oaks continued, let us be united to defend the great principles of the United States Constitution and to use our precious freedoms to further the work of our faith and to serve our fellow men. Almighty God has given us our inspired United States Constitution, close quote. And Almighty God's plan is working. Think of it. The incalculable good the Constitution has accomplished in the United States and globally, just in terms of the liberty it has facilitated for billions to say nothing of life in the pursuit of happiness. I am astounded by what the Constitution has accomplished in its lifetime despite dreadful opposition. That it enabled this nation to overcome slavery, fight and survive a bloody civil war, largely over this issue, arrest Jim Crow's lawlessness and flagrant disregard of constitutional amendments, embrace civil rights, endure race riots and assassinations of government and civic leaders, withstand attacks from enemies within and without, and speaking of its historical significance, gone all the way to electing a biracial president not once but twice, all speak to the obvious power, wisdom, and miracle of the Constitution's establishment. Has the United States Constitution worked? Three Latin words known by every lawyer listening come to mind. Race ipsa locator. The thing speaks for itself. What about history and heritage? Are we never to look back? I take a powerful lesson from Alma. He looked back, but did so to increase his faith, which Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said is all, always points to the future. Alma said, quote, I say unto you, my brethren that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? None could deliver them except it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he surely did deliver them in their afflictions, close quote. I also take strength from the Latter-day Saint tradition and example, especially among descendants of pioneers, uh, many look back in the words of Reverend Dr. Amos C. Brown of the NAACP, not to be bitter, but to be better. To look forward with faith in every footstep. 
this model can be instructive and empowering for any culture or person emerging from past, even infuriating, injustice. I said I would address what I think is our Heavenly Father's grander vision for bringing a vast, comprehensive cross-section of his children into one land. His pattern seems to be to have his children envision his ideal or begin with the end in mind, as President Nelson would say. So it seems he would first draw all manner of ites into one people, uh, as one people in the same land, per his covenant with Lehi. Through the restored gospel, he would eventually transform them into one people in Christ with no ites. His establishment of the Constitution, especially the preeminent freedom of religion clauses of the First Amendment, would enable him, enable them to keep his law. The Lord also promised ancient Joseph that the Book of Mormon and the Bible would grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions and establishing peace, close quote. All these elements would be positively crucial in this Latter-day crucible of human diversity. As Elder Quentin L. Cook taught, quote, The Savior's ministry and message have consistently declared all races and colors are God's children. We are all brothers and sisters. In our doctrine, we believe that in the host country for the restoration, the United States, the U.S. Constitution and related documents written by imperfect men were inspired by God to bless all people, close quote. As we look forward with an eye of faith and view this great day of unity, we will naturally repent, forgive, be peacemakers, and unify. We will continue to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice and root out racism, both quotes from President Nelson and President Oaks, respectively. We will have eyes to see others as God does. This includes the Constitution's framers, whom the Lord raised up and called wise. Let us remember that he permitted them to appear before a prophet in a holy temple to request and receive their sacred ordinances and covenants. Latter-day Saints should lead our nations in all these efforts, and Latter-day Saint lawyers should be at the forefront among us. In addition, God's organizing this land, particularly the United States, as a, as a pluralistic society, suggests he prefers that the inevitable differences among his disparate children be resolved amicably. All of this underscores the wisdom of President Oak's recent plea far beyond the spires of our own church. Quote, I earnestly invite all religious leaders and associations to coalesce more effectively, and that often means out of court, to seek peaceful resolution of painful conflicts between religious freedom and non-discrimination. All that is necessary for unity in a broad coalition to promote our common need for religious freedom is that is our shared conviction that God has commanded us to love one another, including our neighbors with different beliefs and cultures. Quoting the church's general counsel, Elder Lance B. Wickman, President Oaks stated, 
when we exercise our religious freedom to serve and lift and uh, to serve and lift to strengthen community ties and pour oil on troubled waters and to make America better when we use our religious freedom to bring people together in unity and love we are defending and preserving religious liberty and the constitution in a most profound way president oaks concluded I pray for that result under our inspired constitution as we pledge to be one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, close quote. At the beginning of this talk, I asked not just if God was specially communicating with Latter-day lawyers, but also why. Let me conclude with my sense of why. All this effort... All these covenants, promises, preparations, writings, the United States Constitution, all the planting and pruning and growing and grafting over the eras and epochs of the earth, all the scattering and bringing and leading, all culminate into a singular godly purpose, the great gathering of Israel that must occur before the second coming of Jesus Christ. No wonder the Lord's prophet has declared That gathering is the most important thing taking place on earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude. Nothing else compares in importance. Nothing else compares in majesty. John Adams might say, as he said at the nation's founding, there is nothing on this side of Jerusalem of greater importance. Brothers and sisters, lawyers and judges, let us gather. The prophet explained to the youth of the church Quote, anytime you do anything that helps anyone on either side of the veil take a step toward making covenants with God and receiving their essential baptismal and temple ordinances, you are helping to gather Israel. It is as simple as that. And let us remember to do so among our legal colleagues. Perhaps this covenant running with the land parallel would be a normal, natural discussion they might appreciate. When I practiced law, I regularly and openly discussed my faith and values. My boss during the criminal defense stage of my career in New Jersey was Jewish and very secular and cynical about religion. However, you will be happy to hear that after our approximately 12 years of professional association and loving friendship when I left that office in 2000, he had gone from atheist all the way to agnostic. And yes, he has a copy of the Book of Mormon. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced the Lord is specially messaging Latter-day lawyers and, by extension, our loved ones through the Book of Mormon, his ancient and modern prophets, and the establishment of the United States Constitution. He is inviting us to give notice, to gather, to love, share, and invite. He pleads for us to embrace the doctrine of Christ and share it with everyone. I close echoing President Henry B. Eyring's promise, quote, The Lord Jehovah will return to live with those who have become his people and will find them unified of one heart, unified with him and with our Heavenly Father. We will be prepared as a people for our glorious destiny. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.